The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Before we get started here, let me just give you a quick commercial. The conference is coming up real soon, okay? April 20th through the 22nd. So if you have not registered yet, please do that. It's going to be a great conference. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser is going to be there speaking. You know, and I'm excited about that. This, this man is a scholar par excellence. It'll be a, a very educational time. Also, we have uh, Gennady Proshenko is coming in from the Ukraine. He's a preterist. He's a reformed preterist pastor in the Ukraine. He's going to be sharing with us his ministry over there in the Ukraine. So it's just going to be... It's going to be a great time, and it's going to be a good time of fellowship, so uh, I'd encourage you, get your room reserved, get your reservations in, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, many of our extended family as we get together for kind of a family reunion every year. All right, with that said, uh, let's get into the message here. Um, we're continuing our study of the Upper Room Discourse. This study takes place in the last 18 hours or so of our Lord's life. Okay, these are his final words to his disciples before they crucify him. Now, earlier in the night, uh, he exposed Judas as a traitor because Judas had come with the group. They were shocked. They had no clue. He exposed them. He dismissed them. So now he is with his true disciples. The true believers are there gathered in this room, and he is teaching them. And... As I've said over and over, this book of glory, this last section, the last half of this gospel is called the book of glory. It is addressed to believers. You've got to keep that in mind as we go through these teachings. He is talking to believers. Now, as we begin chapter 15 this morning, we begin the second major division of Yeshua's last discourse. And that's in verse chapters 15 and 16. And it continues, Yeshua is preparing His disciples for His soon death and departure. But the talk of His departure is kind of left behind, and the teaching focuses on the way the disciples are to live after Yeshua is gone. So some very practical, very good stuff for us in here. He's telling these disciples, this is how I want you to live after I'm gone. Now if you remember, John 14 ended with Yeshua saying, Arise, let us go from here. But nothing further is said about Yeshua and the disciples leaving or moving or anything until you get to 18.1. The very next verse in chapter 15.1 just resumes teaching of Yeshua as if there'd been no interruption. So there's a big debate you know, among people. Did, did they leave at the end of 14 and now they're walking you know, through the countryside as He heads to Jerusalem? Or are they still in the room? I don't know. We really don't know for sure. I mean, I lean more towards the idea they're still in the room. You know, they're still, they got it from the table. They moved to a different location, maybe. But bottom line, people, doesn't matter. Okay? If they're walking through the countryside, if they're still in that upper room, the teaching is the same. And that's really what's important here. All right. 15.1 says, Yeshua says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, for our study this morning, we're going to look at the first five words. All right? Now, theologically, 
These five words are huge. My difficulty this morning is going to be in try to unpack these five words in just an hour. Okay? I'm going to do the best I can. But as I said, these words are huge theologically. So when you take this and read it in context, and Yeshua is saying, I am the true vine, what does that initially say to you? If Yeshua saying He's the true vine, what does that tell us? Okay. All good things, but isn't it saying there's a false vine? There's a vine that's not true? I mean, that's, you know, He's saying, I'm the true vine. He's contrasting Himself with a vine that was not faithful, a vine that was not true. Now, He made a similar contrast in chapter 6 where He said, I am the true bread, comparing himself with the manna. The word true here is the Greek word alethanos, which means opposite to what is imperfect, defective. The way alethanos is used in the Gospel of John means real or genuine. He's the real vine. Hang on to that, right? So, what's the false vine? Who's he comparing himself to? To what? Well, kind of. In the Old Covenant, the vine was a symbol of what? Israel. Israel. You've got to hang on to that. The vine was a symbol of Israel. Let me show you that. So who or what is the true vine? Who or Who's he comparing himself to? The vine that's not true is Israel. And we're going to see that. All right, let me show you some scriptures. Psalm 80, verse 8 and 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Okay, God brought this vine out of Egypt, right? You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. That sounds good, doesn't it? If you stop there, that sounds good. If you continue reading, the vine was unfaithful and God judged it. Okay? We're not going to go on in there, but I, you know, read on in Psalm 80 there and you'll see that. Look at Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I planted you a choice vine. Yahweh is talking to Israel here. I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? See, already, just in one verse there, you're the vine, but you're a degenerate vine. Hosea, chapter 10, 1 and 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine. Alright, you got that now? We're no doubt who, who the vine is. It's Israel. That yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Did you catch that? The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built, As his country improved, he improved his pillars. In other words, the more God did for them, the worse they got. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. This reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter 8 where God says, Beware. When you get in houses you didn't build and you got crops you didn't plant and you, and you have all the richness of the land, 
Beware that you don't forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And that's exactly what they did. And here it's like the fruit increase and so they just turn away from God. Now, the prophet Hosea is sent to the northern kingdom of Israel in about the 8th century B.C. And the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are sent to the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is sent to Judah in the 9th century and the others in the 6th century B.C. prior to the conquest and destruction of Judah by Babylon. In each case, these prophets use Israel-Judah as the vine imagery in the pronouncement of Yahweh's judgment. So you've got to hang on to it. Every time the vine is mentioned, there's a judgment. There's a pronoun- It's always, this vine is not good. This vine is not doing what it should. In each case, the judgment resulted in the destruction of the nation. In 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, and then Judah in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Probably one of the most well-known passages along this line is Isaiah chapter 5. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choices of vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded, I love this Hebrew word, buhushim. It's only used twice. It's used in this passage twice. But it means poison grapes. Bad grapes. So God plants a vineyard and He comes to get fruit and what He finds is buhushim. Poisonous fruit. Oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield? Buhushim. And now I will tell you what I do for my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. This vineyard, if a vineyard is going to produce grapes, it's got to be pruned. We'll talk about that next week. Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel. Alright, make sure we understand. And the men of Judah are His pleasant planting. So, the vineyard is Israel. And He looked for justice. And behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold an outcry. So God plants this vineyard and He gets nothing of it but poison berries. It's just not producing any fruit at all. The rest of this chapter, Isaiah chapter 5, is all about the judgment of the vine. Then if we go to the book of Ezekiel, we see that Yahweh expresses His anger with His covenant people for breaking their oath of obedience to the laws of the covenant. And he does that using an allegory of the eagle and the vine in Ezekiel chapter 17. So the nation's failure to produce fruit and its consequence impending divine judgment are in view whenever the vine is mentioned representing Israel. 
So you got to keep that in mind. Whenever he talks about the vine, he says, this is what the vine should have done. The vine never did it. It didn't produce fruit. Those references in the Tanakh to Israel as a vine are also seen in the New Testament passages of Yeshua's parables about the vine. He talks about that in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20. Remember he talks about the vineyard being planted when the landowner goes to get fruit from the vineyard. You know, they, they, throw, they kill the servants. You know, they beat him. They kill some. They kill the son. You know, now what's going to happen? He's going to come and destroy that vineyard. In each parable, the Jews or Israelites are identified with the vineyard that did not produce good fruit and then were judged by Yahweh. So we see this imagery through the Tanakh. We see it in the New Testament. We also see it in the culture. The Maccabeans minted coins, and on the coin was a vine illustrating Israel. Alfred Edersheim said, Above the entrance into the holy place of the temple hung that symbol of Israel, a gigantic vine of pure gold, and made of votive offerings, each cluster the height of a man. So here's this huge golden vine above the temple. It was a symbol. The vine was a symbol of Israel. And when it's talked about in Scripture, judgment is talked about. So when we talk about the vine, when Yeshua says, I am the vine, we're dealing with language and imagery that had special significance for the Jew. They saw it under coins. They saw it on the temple. They read it in the Scripture. And we've seen throughout John's Gospel, it is packed full of allusions that need to be understood in a Jewish context. I think it's one of the greatest mistakes we make and going to the Bible, we read it as if it was written today to us. We read things, we I know what that means. Without knowing what the Israelites thought about it. See, what we have to ask ourselves when Yeshua says, I'm the vine, what would the disciples have thought when they heard that? What came into their mind? See, a vine was so much more than just a common sight for the Jews. It was very common. They would see these all over the place. But it had been used as a word picture of God's people. Israel was the vine. And so when Yeshua began to speak of Himself as the true vine, His disciples knew the Scripture. Both the Law of Moses and the writing of the prophets would immediately they have thought of this very significant verse from Isaiah and from Ezekiel and about Yeshua's teaching about the judgment of the vine. All this would have come to mind. All the verses in the Tanakh. The teaching of Yeshua. See, because what is really strange here is Yeshua identifies Himself, not Israel, as the genuine, true vine. Israel failed. He is the true vine. Christ is now the vine, and those of old covenant Israel who believe in Him are part of of the true vine. They're members of the new Israel, of the new covenant church. It is this faithful remnant of the old Israel who are now the new Israel with a new and an everlasting covenant. Now he starts out this I am, again using the ego eimi, the I am statement. The I am was a way Yeshua had of drawing the connection between himself and Yahweh, the I am who I am. 
Marines, this is a claim to deity. Every time he says it, it's a claim to deity. The Jews would connect the I am back to what? Exodus 3. When Moses came before Yahweh in the wilderness and he asked God, who should I say sent me? And God said, my name is I am that I am. Ehia, asher, ehia. That means I am that which exists. Now the root of ehia is haya, which means to be or exist. So Elohim tells Moses his name is ehia. And then the very next verse in Exodus 3, he says, my name is Yahweh. The two names Yahweh and Ehiah are related. Yahweh is and Ehiah is. Ehiah means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh means He exists, He will exist, He is. And it can also mean not only He exists, but He causes to exist. Both the names are related to each other. They're both conveying the idea that Yahweh is the self existent one who brings things into existence. And so, listen, they did, the Jews of that day had no doubt what he was saying when he said, I am the true vine. As we have seen in our study of this gospel, he continually declared that he was God over and over and over. Every time he said, my father, he was underscoring that he and Yahweh had the same nature. And his Jewish audience knew it was a claim to deity. They got it. We don't get it today. You've got to get into the minds of the Jews to understand what they saw this as. Now, this is the seventh and final I am statement with the predicate nominative. Okay? Seven of them just happens to be seven. All right? Let me review them for you. He said, I'm the bread of life. Again, every time using this ego of me. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Now, symbolically in Scripture, seven is the number of fullness, completion, perfection. So we have seven of these I am statements. And Yeshua appears in these I am statements as, first of all, the source of eternal life. He's the resurrection. He's the life. He's the vine. These all speak of life. He's also the means of entry into life because He says He's the door and He's the way. He's also a guide who leads people to life. He is the shepherd. And as the source of nourishment for eternal life, He is the bread. And as the illumination which lights the way in the darkness, He is the light. Now, like many of the previous I am claims of Yeshua, this claim presupposes a certain knowledge of his hearers. All right? The bread claim presupposes knowledge of the manna which God sent from heaven. And he says, I am the true bread. Your father fed you with manna in the wilderness. I'm the true bread. I, that manna didn't last that long. You still died. I'm the bread. You eat this, you'll last forever. The light claim presupposed knowledge of God as the light of Israel. It presupposed Israel's intended role of bringing light to the Gentiles. That was their calling. And of the prophecies of the Messiah as the one who would bring the light. The shepherd claim presupposed knowledge of God as the shepherd of Israel. 
and of the leaders of Israel as shepherds who failed to fulfill their duty. And this vine claim presupposes knowledge of Israel's failure as a vine. The significance of the claim to be the true vine is that Yeshua viewed Himself as the fulfillment of Israel. Yeshua was the true Israel. And Yeshua's followers were the true Israelites. And this claim is an exclusive claim. It prohibits, it denies the existence of any other valid or viable alternative. He's the vine. So Yeshua comes along and in effect says that a person is no longer part of God's covenant people simply by being joined to the nation Israel. A person has to be joined to Him. He is the true vine. He is the true Israel. He is replacing the faulty, worthless vine. Now, as I said earlier, these five words are huge theologically. And the reason they are is because one of the great theological battlegrounds within Orthodox Christianity throughout the centuries has been the nature and character of the church. Especially in relation to the biblical predecessor, Israel. I mean, you ask people about this. You know, how do Israel and the church relate to each other? What, what's going on? And people, they have all kinds of different ideas. What's the relationship between Israel and the church? There's four major views, and there's a lot of variations of these. But I just want to share with you the four major views of this. Because I think what Yeshua is saying here really, I think, clears this up. So what's the relationship between Israel and the church? Well, one of the views is called separation theology. This says the church and Israel are totally separate. You know, these views are so dumb that I feel like I'm wasting my time even talking about them, but they're predominant, so I think it's important to at least understand them. This is the view held by dispensationalism. All right? Although premillennial dispensationalism is a relatively new viewpoint in the history of Christian theology... Its position on God's special purpose for Israel has shaped, even dominated, the evangelical view on the relationship between Israel and the church. See, according to classic dispensationalism, now dispensationalism is evolving and it's got some different views, it kind of altered some of its views, but classic dispensationalism taught that God has two different peoples who each respectively have different covenant promises. Different destinies, different purposes. Membership in Israel is by natural birth. One enters the church by supernatural birth. And dispensationalists view Israel and the church as having distinct eternal destinies. Israel will receive an eternal earthly kingdom. The church, an eternal heavenly kingdom. And irrespective of anything else that may be found in the system, if you reject the Israel church distinction, you cease to be a dispensationalist according to dispensationalists. Okay? Darby, who is considered the father of dispensationalism, stated it in these terms, the Jewish nation is never to enter the church. Is that the dumbest statement you've ever heard? When did the church begin? Pentecost, right? I mean, that's what, that's what they believe. They believe the church, Darby believed the church began at Pentecost. But the Jewish nation never entered the church. Who in the world made up the church for the first ten years? 
Nothing but Jews. Ten years. But they say, well, you got a different problem. Well, they're all Jews. Oh, it's the craziest. Like I said, Ryrie says this. The basic premise of dispensationalism is the two purposes of God expressed in the formation of two peoples who maintain their distinction throughout eternity. The Jews never come in the church, they say. Really? Ryrie considers this the most important dispensational distinctive. And like, <laughs> what's comical here is that these guys believed that Pentecost was the birth of the church. So how do they hold those? How do you believe Pentecost was the birth and the only people at that were all Jews? Like I said, for 10 years. You know how did God got them to go to the Gentiles? He cranked up the persecution so, he, so hot they had to leave and then they started carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. Now here's what troubles me most about, most about dispensationalism. Theology has consequences, people. What you believe affects how you think, what you do. I believe there's a connection between the church's view of Israel and terrorism. And I think it's because of dispensationalism and Christian Zionism, most American Christians believe, because of these teachings, that they have a biblical mandate to stand with the nation Israel. Right or wrong, good or bad, whatever they do, we just got to stand behind them because they're God's people and he that touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. So these, it is illegal to share the gospel of Christ in Jerusalem. Illegal. But we think the Jews are wonderful people. We think we got to stand behind them. Even though Yeshua says, you honor me, you honor the Father the same way. If you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. So you reject Yeshua, you got no God the Father. Okay, You can't do that. See, what happens is because of Zionism, because Christians believe that we got to stand behind Israel, it causes the Arab world to hate us. Osama bin Laden, who you won't hear me quote very often, says this, our terrorism is a good, accepted terrorism because it is against America. It's for the purpose of defeating oppression so America would stop supporting Israel who is killing our children. People say, well, these Arabs, they hate us because of our lifestyle, because of this. They hate us because we're in their business. We're in their face. We're supporting Israel, and Israel is killing their children. That's why they hate us. So Bin, Bin Laden says that terrorism is connected to America's support of Israel. And I say that America's support of Israel is tied to bad theology. People, the nation of Israel has absolutely nothing to do with the plan of God anymore. They're done. They're gone. They're Forget about it. And that's what Yeshua is saying here. I am the true Israel. There's no Israel apart from Yeshua now. All right, so we got the separation theology. Then we have the two covenant theology. In the recent history of talks about this, Israel and the church, this new and more radical position has emerged, which is often linked with the name of Franz Rosenzweig, who's a Jewish author 
of a work written shortly after World War I entitled The Star of Redemption. Two covenant theology teaches there's two separate covenants. One between God and Israel, and the other between God and the church of Yeshua. Rather than being one way of redemption through faith in Yeshua for Jew and Gentile alike, God's original covenant relationship with His ancestral people remains separate from His relation with the new covenant people. You know who holds this two-covenant theology view that is a main player in churchianity? John Hagee. Yeah, this is John Hagee's view. This is the view he pushes. He says you don't need to evangelize the Jews. They got their own covenant. Again, who in the world was there at Pentecost? They had their own covenant, but they jumped in. You know, listen, here's the thing. I can dismantle both dispensationalism and the two-covenant view in 60 seconds. You ready? Go. All right, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, but I will make a new covenant. With who? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So what's Yahweh promising here? The new covenant. Who's He promising it to? Israel, right? Anybody disagree with that? The new covenant is for Israel. Good, then we got that down. Let me ask you this. What covenant is the church under? What covenant is the church under? Not a trick, right. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul said this, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, that's the old covenant, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, Spirit gives life. Jeremiah 31 is undeniably addressed to Israel and Judah, the whole house. The new covenant is the very heart of the Gospel. Yet, if the church is fulfilling the promise given to Israel under the New Covenant, dispensationalism and the two covenant view are dead. The New Covenant is ours. And see, these views, dispensationalism and the two covenant view, they don't explain Paul's olive tree metaphor and Gentiles being grafted into Israel. You know, they just like ignore that. It's just like, they're separate, we're over here, they're over there. Well, not according to Paul. All right, then there's another view called replacement theology. This is normally used as a derogatory term when you hear it. You know, they're, oh, that's a replacement theology. But <clears throat> it says that the church in Israel referred to the same group of people. Now, they would view, this would be the, the view of covenant theology. They would hold this view. And this is a system of theology that arose largely through the Calvinists in Holland. Now, there are differences of opinion among covenant theologians on how this goes, but generally speaking, covenant theologians see the time of the birth of the church to be where? Anybody know? Where do they see the birth of the church? Adam or Abraham? That's where they'll place the birth of the church. So they usually think of the church as being in the Tanakh. And it's proper for them to speak of Israel as the church. They call it the Old Covenant Church. All right? So they just, you know, they kind of merge it. They're doing the opposite of these other views. They're keeping them separate. They're smushing them all together. Okay? So, (laughs) this view doesn't, again, doesn't seem to fit with what Paul says in Ephesians about the fact that the mystery was not revealed in the Tanakh about the Jew and Gentile becoming one new man, the church. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2. 
Now, I remember when I taught through this, this, this verse changed my view on the fact that, you know, I used to say there's nothing new in the New Testament. But I believe there is something new. And I believe God's revealing it here. He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This tells us that Yeshua created something new in the church. The Greek word used here for new is kainos, which means new in a point of quality. A thing which is kainos is new in the sense that it brings a new quality. We could say one fresh man. That's kind of the idea of the Greek word kainos. It's not something totally new, but it's a new quality that didn't exist before. It's not as dispensational as, say, something totally different and distinct from Israel. Because notice what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, talking to the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. See, here's what we have to understand. Yahweh didn't go out and plant a new tree. But He created branches that He put grafted into the tree He already had, into the root of Israel. Now when the grafting process of an olive tree is started, first of all, they take the olive tree and they cut it down to almost nothing. I mean, there's a stump. Okay? Then they'll take branches and they'll, from a good tree and they'll graft them into the, uh, this olive tree. And this good branch will then produce fruit while it gets all its nourishment from the root system. See, the root system is already there. And so the branches grow very rapidly because it's not, you know, also going down and go. It's the systems there just shooting everything in and growing. I got a tree in my backyard that I've cut down, cut it down to a stump, foot high. It just regrew, you know, so I trimmed it and got it the way I like it. And when it gets too big, I cut it down again and it just starts right back over again. And it shoots up fast because the root system is there. He talks about the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, let me ask you this. Who or what is the root? I would say that the root he's talking about here is Abraham and the promises that Yahweh made to him. Look at Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek Yahweh, look to the rock from which you are hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. So he's basically saying, this is where you came from. What, where? Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. See, it all goes back to Abraham. Tom Holland writes this, Paul saw its root to represent the promises made to Abraham and its branches to represent the spiritual offspring, believing Jew and Gentiles, who are justified and made holy by the same faith as their father. So the root of the olive tree is Abraham, and the promises that Yahweh made to him. Now watch as we read this promise that God made to Abraham, and I want you to see if you can see any ifs in here. All right? We go back to Genesis 12. Now, Get the context here. What's happening? What's just happened in the first 11 chapters? God's been dealing with the nations because that's all there was was nations. They keep turning away from them. They keep sinning. So God got to the point of Tower of Babel. He said, that's it. I've had enough. I'm done with all of you. He took these lesser gods and He 
put them over these nations. And he said, you, here, these are your gods. I'm done with you. I'm going to go get my own people. And in chapter 12, he calls Abraham and starts all over. Now, Yahweh said, now, <laughs> before we look at this, Yahweh said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Did Abraham any, have any clue about who Yahweh was at this point in time? Often you'll hear, I've said it, Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper. But, was he really? The book of Jasser, chapter 9, verse 6, says this, And Abraham was in Noah's house 39 years. And Abraham knew the Lord from three years old. And he went in the ways of the Lord until the day of his death. Interesting. Okay? So, you know, did God call this man? Was he totally clue? It seems like Abraham heard the voice of Yahweh. He just goes. So, you know, he didn't say, hey, who is this? Who are you? Which God are you? No. God had revealed himself for those first 11 chapters every way he could. Just most of the people rejected him. But he had some faithful people. All right? He says, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Any if so far? I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I love this. Because God had just turned from all the nations. I'm done with you. But as He calls a new nation, He says, I'm going to use you, Abraham, to bless those families that I just turned my back on. That I just gave over to fall. I'm going to call them back to myself. Do you see any ifs here in God's Word to Abraham? It's not an agreement. It's a promise. You're going to read in vain Genesis 12-15 through to find anywhere where God says, if you do this, then I will do that. He does do that when you get to the nation Israel, okay? He does do that. In other words, there's no conditions for Abraham. This is what's called the unilateral covenant. God's saying, I'm going to do this. What is Abraham going to do? Nothing. God's going to do it. All right? So I see the root of this olive tree as Abraham and the unilateral covenant that Yahweh made with him. So the root is the covenant promises made to Abraham, and the tree is the church, Jew and Gentile believers who embraced Yeshua as the Messiah. Those of ethnic Israel who did not believe that Yeshua was the Messiah were broken off. He says, now share. He's talking to Gentiles. Gentiles, you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Gentile believers become partakers with the Jews in that root. Now the word share here, now share in the nourishing root, is from the Greek word sunkonos. And it means sharers or fellowshippers together with them in that olive tree. With them is a reference to believing Jews. See, we, you and I, Gentiles, we become partakers of the rich root of the olive tree. This is not replacement theology. Alright? I think we didn't replace Israel. We became partners with the remnant of the Abrahamic covenant. God didn't replace the Hebrew tree with the Gentile tree. He grafted us into the Hebrew tree. I think this is better called, and it's kind of called, sometimes it's called remnant theology or fulfillment theology. In other words, the church 
is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel. See, people still today say, well, God didn't fulfill all the promises made to Israel. Yes, He did in the church. See, the root now supports two types of branches, cultivated and wild. And together, they're one tree. Look at Galatians 3.28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. See, there's no separation anymore in the church. You don't have a Jew and a Greek. No, they're just Christians. That's where I have a problem with the Messianic movement, the building walls that God tore down. You don't have a Greek church and a Hebrew church. You have a church. There's only one. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You say, well, I think there's still male and women. Even Our society is trying to literalize this, okay? Do away with that. No, but he's saying in Christ, there's no difference there. For you are all one in Christ Yeshua. Now watch. And if you're Christ, through faith, then you're Abraham's offspring. And you're heirs according to the promise. See, Abrahamic promises are ours in Christ. Notice what Paul says to the Galatians, the Gentiles in Romans. In Romans eleven eighteen, 18, he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Talking to Gentiles, don't be arrogant towards the Jewish branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Okay? The grafted shoot is sharing the same rising sap as the remaining original branches. The Gentiles are totally dependent on the covenant that God entered into with Abraham and the promises He gave him. Faith in Christ is the link with the promises made to Abraham. It unites us to the nourishing root of that olive tree. Now, being a Christian means becoming a true Jew. Being a Christian means finding your ancestry in Abraham. You become his offspring. What does this tell us about the church that I think the modern church really misses today? Our roots are Hebrew. Now, I don't agree with the Hebrew roots movement, okay? But our roots are Hebrew, okay? And, and the more we understand that, the better we're going to understand who we are. Because you and I, Gentile believers, have been grafted into Yahweh's olive tree. Yahweh didn't get upset with Israel and go out and plant a new tree as dispensationalism teaches. He grafted us into Israel through Yeshua, who is Israel. We cannot exist without our Jewish roots. You can't exist independently of Yeshua, nor can you exist independently of your Jewish roots. Because Yeshua is not a tree, He's a shoot out of the tree, and the tree was Israel. The Abrahamic promises. Our roots are Jewish. And if we're going to understand Christianity, it starts by understanding our Hebrew roots, which means we have to learn the first three quarters of the Bible. It is so foolish to start with the New Testament and think you can get it. All the language in the New Testament is built on the first three quarters of the Bible. And when you get that and use their language, it makes a whole lot more sense. The church is the true Israel of God. We inherit all the promises that God made to Israel. Look at Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham, we saw that in chapter 12, right? And to his offspring. Okay, you read that and you think, yeah, everyone that came out of Abraham. Now, it does not say 
to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is what? Christ. So the promises were for who? The promises were to Abraham and Christ. Okay? Let me tell you how I see this verse, what I see it as saying, and then try to explain why. Paul is saying that the primary recipients recipients of the Abrahamic covenant were Abraham and Christ. This, of course, would include all who are in Christ, all believers. This promise is not realized in physical Israelites, but in the new Israel, the church. See, apart from Paul's divinely inspired commentary, how many of us would understand that Abraham's seed was Christ? We take the word seed, their descendants, and we say, well, that's everyone that came from the line of Abraham. No, it's referring specifically to Christ. And listen, when the New Testament authors comment on a passage from the Tanakh, they do not give an interpretation. They give the interpretation. Because the New Testament interprets the Tanakh. So he says, Abraham's offspring is Christ. Look at Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ, by faith, then you're Abraham's offspring. Well, he just said Abraham's offspring was Christ. Look at, you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. He said, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring who is Christ. Then he says, you're Abraham's offspring. Why? Because you're in Christ. So you're, you inherit all the promises because you're connected to Christ. See, Yeshua is true Israel. He said, I'm the true vine. And the church becomes the Israel of God when it unites to true Israel and all the promises. Now, I think this is clear. I think this is awesome because it's making it very clear who Israel is, who the true vine is, the true Israel, and how we connect to that. But one commentator writing on this, uh, he's commenting on being uh, Christ being the true vine. He says this, We must understand that an image before pressing its meaning, we've got to understand it before we press it. In those cases, the vine represented Israel. He's talking about you know, the, the references from the Tanakh. That's quite clear. Now watch what he says. But in our text of John 15, the vine clearly represents Jesus Christ. I agree with that. Watch. Without any parallel to Old Testament usage. What? What? So, oh, he just throws this out. Hey, I know all you guys think the vine is Israel. I'm not, I'm not connecting that at all. Okay, I'm just starting something new here. I'm the vine. Forget about any of those connections. What, is he crazy? He sees no parallel between Old Covenant Israel and Christ? This is what you say when you're defending a system that doesn't go with what the text says. Oh, he, he's not making any connection there. Let, let me give you a few scriptures, a few more scriptures to see if you can make a little bit of connection here between Christ and Israel. All right? Exodus 4.22 Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. Who is Israel here? It's the old covenant people of God, right? Well then... Hosea 11.1 says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Who's Hosea talking about? Well, it looks like he's talking about Old Covenant Israel. And when you study 
this text in context of the entire book, you find that Hosea is referring to the Exodus described in the book of Exodus. So he's talking about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. But where this gets interesting, remember, the New Testament gives you the interpretation, not an interpretation. All right? Matthew applies Hosea 11.1 to Yeshua as a youth returning to Judea from Egypt. Oh, so he's connecting these two? Matthew 2, 14 and 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what Yahweh had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I've called my son. You're, you're scratching your head because you say, I would never see that in Hosea. No, you wouldn't. You had never got that. You read Hosea, you see, talking about Israel, talking about the nation Israel. But we need to remember that the meaning of a text ultimately resides in the intention of the author, and God Himself is the author here. And as we read Scripture in the context of the Bible as a whole, we see that He has made an analogy. God over and over makes an analogy between Israel, God's Son being freed from Egypt, and Yeshua, God's Son, coming from Egypt. A pattern that runs all through Matthew's Gospel. Out of Egypt I have called my son is Exodus typology where Yeshua is the new Israel. When that writer says, but in our text in John 15, the vine clearly represents Jesus Christ without any parallel to the Old Testament, it makes me wonder how familiar he is with the Gospels. Because there's a dominance in the Gospels on the replacement Moffat. Yeshua being the true Israel. I mean, we see it in John so clearly. In our study so far, we've seen in John that Yeshua has already, in principle, superseded the temple. Remember chapter 2? He says, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up because I'm the true temple. Okay? He's replacing the temple. He's the dwelling place of God with His people. Yeshua also says He gives living water that Jacob's well couldn't give. They had that well, but... That water wasn't living water. The bread God gave Israel in the wilderness sustained the lives of the Israelites for a time. But Yeshua says, I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven because I give eternal life to all those who partake of me. John chapter 6. Further, Yeshua is the new Moses who supplies God's people with the true bread. Moses gave manna. I'm giving you bread that you'll have for everlasting life. And see, the idea of Moses being a type of Christ and Christ being the antitype is very strong in Matthew's Gospel. I mean, it's, if you're familiar with the Tanakh and you read Matthew's Gospel, you've got to see this stuff. Matthew certainly appears to teach that Yeshua, as the true Israel, recapitulates Old Covenant Israel's history and purpose. Like Moses, Yeshua will grow up in Egypt. Like the story of Moses, Herod slaughters the male children. Like Moses' exile into Midian, Yeshua's exile into Egypt will end with the death of Herod Pharaoh. And then we have a new exodus foretold. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And then in Matthew, Yeshua is baptized. And as Yeshua emerges from the water, we hear, this is my beloved son, which invokes a related image. Israel was adopted and became God's son at the exodus from Egypt, at the crossing of the Red Sea. 
And so this is New Exodus typology in which Israel is born. Yeshua being the true Israel. We come to Matthew 4, which describes Yeshua's temptation in the wilderness. And again, if we're familiar with this knock, we see this pattern all through there. When we read that Yeshua, the Son of God, spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, that reminds us, right, of the Israel's trek, 40 years in the wilderness. But the comparison goes way beyond the number 40. The Israelites were tempted in the wilderness in the same areas that Yeshua was tempted. In hunger and thirst. Secondly, in the testing God. God, they wouldn't believe Him. They wouldn't trust Him. And thirdly, in worshiping false gods. Yeshua, however, shows Himself to be the obedient Son of God. The true Israel. Israel failed. Yeshua was obedient. He didn't fail. Where the Israelites were disobedient, He remained true. Yeshua responded to the temptations by quoting Deuteronomy. The sermon that Moses gave the Israelites at the end of their 40-year sojourn. In Yeshua's temptation in the wilderness, He was recapitulating Israel's temptation in the wilderness. And where national Israel failed, Christ obeyed. Well, what happens in the next chapter of Matthew? Chapter 5. Well, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. So Yeshua goes to the mountain like Moses and gives the Torah. The Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua is the new Israel. you got to be spiritually blind not to see this. In our text, Yeshua used the vine metaphorically of Himself. We can't escape the inference that Yeshua viewed Himself as the fulfillment of Israel. He supersedes Israel as the very locus of the people of God. He's the true vine. The full and final revelation of all that the vine anticipated and foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. There were to be a light to the Gentiles. He comes, He says, I am the light of the world. Not just the light of Israel. True Israel is faithful Israel. And only faithful Israel The only faithful Israelite that ever lived was Yeshua. The only one. Only He completely fulfilled all the Father's righteous laws for Israel. Just as He was the last Adam, obeying every place where the first Adam failed to obey, He was also true Israel, obeying where old covenant Israel failed to obey. He's the perfect, the faithful, the true Israelite. And listen to this, people. Please grab this. His obedience is credited to us. Can you say amen? We have His obedience. The only faithful Israelite, His obedience is credited to us. All who are united by faith alone to Yeshua are true Israel. The Israel of God. So what happened to old Israel? What happened to physical Israel? The unfaithful vine. If Christ saying, I'm the true Israel, what about the other one? Do we have two vines now? Well, Galatians 4.30, Paul writes, and this section is dealing with the two covenants. You can read it for yourself and find out he's comparing covenants. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. And that's the old covenant. Of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Listen, people, physical Israel 
is gone. When Yahweh destroyed Israel in AD 70, the church received her inheritance. The only Israel there is today is true Israel, those who believe in Yeshua. You say, what about those people over there in, you know, in Jerusalem? They're just people. They got nothing. There's no connection with God. Once Yeshua showed up on the scene, the only way to have a relationship with God was through Him. You reject Him, you have no relationship with God. I am the true vine. He says, I am the vine, the true one. That's it. It's just Him. Old covenant Israel was judged and they were removed and Yeshua is the true vine. And all who trust in Christ become Israel, Abraham's descendants and heirs to the promise. Abraham's descendant was Yeshua. We are in Yeshua. We inherit all the promises that He inherited. He is Israel. We are the true Israel of God. We are partakers of all the promises that He promised Abraham. The church is the fulfillment of all the promises that Yahweh made to Israel. We are the only true Israel of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the truth of Your Word. Lord, this seems so clear to me. I pray for Your church, Lord. I pray for people hearing this that they would be Bereans. They would not accept this, not reject it, but study it to see if it's so. Lord, You seem to have gone an extra mile to demonstrate that You and Your Son have recapitulated all that Israel was to do and be. And the true, the faithful Israelite, the true vine, Thank you for Yeshua, Lord. Thank you for that Abrahamic covenant that we inherit through faith in Christ. A unilateral covenant. You have called us, made us your own. We thank you for that, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. I hope I communicated the fact of how huge this this is theologically, uh, because it's just it's really important that we get this, you know. It, because, like I said, there's a lot of controversy over Israel and the church and how they play together and how the, uh, what goes on there. So, Veronica, I have a question. I mean, there's a lot, well, a lot of Christian churches that are what is that? Whether they're, they're Jewish, but Christian, messianic. Yeah, I mean. And then I've known personally people who were Jewish who became Christian. Like, how does, how does these other theories, like, explain that? Well, you know, Messianic congregations would say, you know, I mean, they're Christians, all right? They've trusted Christ, but they still want to keep, you know, the, the Hebraic roots or whatever. And I really don't have a problem with that, but you're... You know, you're separating yourself. Now, they would invite Gentiles in, but they, they worship on the Sabbath, which, you know, they're holding the old covenant regulation that was done away. So how does Hagee deal with the fact that some Jews actually become Christians? That... Well, I don't know if Hagee thinks about that. You know, I mean, he, like I said, he's got, a, he's got a separate plan. Yeah, they, you know, they can't come into the church. They have their own covenant with God. You know, here's what's funny. He calls himself a friend of Israel. He's anything but a friend of Israel. He's telling Israel, you don't need the gospel. 
which goes against, I mean, people, what we've been seeing in John, it goes against everything we've been seeing in John to say, you don't need Yeshua. Yeshua's been saying the opposite. I'm it. You're the only one. Okay? I'm the true bread. I'm the true vine. You miss me. You got nothing. You can't go to the Father anymore. Since I showed up, I'm the only way to the Father. You reject me, you reject the Father. I, you know, like I said, it, it, it's mind-blowing to me that Hagee and all and these other guys that see this don't seem to see this stuff, you know? They got separate things, everything's separate, you know, and it's, I don't know, I don't get it. This is a big deal, people, so, you know, spend some time going over this, get it nailed down, because you'll talk to somebody about that. I mean, boy, it's, it's not untypical to mention to anybody about Israel, and they're like, oh, we got to protect them, we got to, you know, I don't care what policy Israel comes up with, how ludicrous, how stupid it is, it's like we have to stand behind them. And, and okay, they're, they're allies, you know, I understand that, you know, so politically we work with them, but don't make it a biblical thing where we have got to defend them no matter what, because God's going to reject us if we don't defend them. That's crazy. You got a text that says, the true vine does away with Israel only. I agree. I think it definitely does that. And the four views you just explained. Well, I think it does away with three views because one of them I hold to. You know, <laughs> I think we are fulfillment. I think we are, you know, we're the fulfillment of the promises and we inherit them. Jeff? Well, on that topic, okay, Israel only. Um, we're not on that topic. We go back and say that Christ said that he comes only to the lost sheep of Israel. Right. What would you propose that whole? If he's, if he's divine. And he's only coming to be the vine to the lost sheep of Israel. How does that get there? Well, see, that's a misunderstanding of the vine. Because when God called Israel from the very beginning in Genesis 12, he called them to be a light to the nations. I mean, you got all the nations and then God turns his back on them, turns them over to false gods, calls Abraham. And the first thing he says is, I want you to be a light to those guys that I just rejected. So that was it. Israel was always to be a light, but they built up these walls and they hated Gentiles and they wouldn't do anything with Gentiles. And, you know, they, they just made this huge separation. And that's what God did in the church. He said, listen, the wall is torn down. There's no separation anymore because you guys are one. This is how I intended it to be. So understanding he's a true vine does away with Israel only because the vine was always to reach out to the Gentiles. Well, Christ Himself said to go out and preach the gospel to all the nations. So. Yes, He did. That's what He called His church to do. Yeah. They, they mistranslate nations as the scattered tribes. You know? The remnant, the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel that were scattered among And I, I did two messages on this, who are the Gentiles in our Ephesians series, because it's, it's important. All right, because there is a group out there, uh, you'll see I.O., Israel only, okay? And what they teach is that all the promises were only to Israel. So guess what? None of the stuff, none of the Bible, none of the promises is to you. There's no salvation for you. There's no church for you. There's nothing for you. Well, there is because we're Israel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In other words, you got nothing because it's only to Israel. It's just, you know, it's like, and why anybody would push this? Because 
Okay, if you find out, you read long enough and you find out, there's nothing in here for me. Well, then why keep reading? Are these believers that are saying that? <laughs> yeah. No, these are not. These are. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. They're believing a doctrine that eliminates them from salvation. It's ludicrous. And it's not biblical because if you go back and study the nations, God has always made provision for the nations. Always, you know, wanted Israel to call. Always wanted Israel to be a light to the nations, to call the nations back to Himself. And you get the Pentecost, and then you got Jews from these 70 nations gathered there, and He's calling the nations back to Himself. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy doctrine that, for some reason, preterism seems to, you know, it seems to fester within preterism.